So now I get to do what, where I really started and I'm like most faculty. Most faculty see patients and do research. This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg and my guest is Dr. Peter Shields. Peter is a medical oncologist and he specializes in treating patients with lung cancer. He is also, or he was until recently, the deputy director of the Ohio State Comprehensive Cancer Center. And in this role, he oversaw the research of a team of 270 world-class cancer researchers. However, Peter recently stepped down from this leadership position, but he is definitely not retiring. In his next chapter of his successful and impactful career, he will devote his time as an emeritus professor to patient care and research and clinical trials. And I also just learned about a new, exciting, different thing he's going to do, which he'll tell us about. So when I heard Peter's news, I thought I needed to have him on the podcast again as a thank you for all the great work he's done over the years. And I also thought this was a great opportunity to learn about how the Comprehensive Cancer Center has grown over the past decade or more and become a world leader in cancer research and some of the new exciting developments and breakthroughs that are next. So welcome back to the podcast, Peter. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So it's great to have you back again. And I just learned, I just got a hold of a press release a couple of your other accomplishments that are pretty impressive. You've, over the years, have been a author, 260 publications, more than. Uh, You have brought in through research grants more than $52 million. To Ohio State. To Ohio State, yes, to Ohio State. Oh, that's true, because you were at other institutions and brought in millions more there. Correct. So um, that's really amazing. That's a lot of research. You were... Uh, the co-lead in the Beating Lung Cancer in Ohio initiative from Pelotonia, and you have raised for Pelotonia more than $90,000 and yeah. ridden it every year. Correct. Every year. Wow. Well, every year since I've been here. So every, it started a couple of years You earlier. started here in 2011. Correct. And uh, so, that, so it's always interesting. You've had just an amazing career, but it's certainly not ending. But I thought this was a great chance to get a, a sense of... Over the years, when you started as a lung cancer specialist, what was it like, briefly, and sort of walk us through some of the changes? Because you you were part of a lot of the breakthroughs through research, through patient treatment in lung cancer as a specialist, but also as the deputy director here, you got to oversee research in everything, immunotherapy, all kinds of new, all kinds of new things. So... It, this is an impossible task, but briefly summarize 40 years of cancer advances. Well, that's actually pretty easy to do. Oh, good. Because 40 <laughs> years ago, we had a handful of drugs. Um, over until 10 years ago, you know, every now and then a new drug would happen. We would fight at national meetings, international meetings, whether this drug that improves survival from one year to, you know, from 12 months to 13 months was considered a breakthrough or not. Right. And uh, every day is precious, but that was not really felt like we were making breakthroughs. Then, you know, there were some targeted therapies, a lot of good work in breast cancer over, over the many years. Um, but lung cancer, until 
I, you know, in, in, the, in the 90s, early 2000s, some targeted therapies were being developed for a small, small number of lung cancer patients. And then what's really changed things, at least in the solid tumor world, is the immunotherapies. I mean, huge, where um, almost every cancer is impacted now. Cancer care is very complicated. Um, I frequently tell my patients I specialize only in lung cancer. I don't think I'm smart enough to be in private practice. You know, these guys, women are out there, you know, in a single day, they're doing lung cancer, breast cancer, um, prostate cancer, leukemia, and so on and so on. And all of cancer care, almost all of cancer care has gotten so much better and so much nuanced with so many choices of drugs um, that we here at the James, you know, we're all these super specialists. And I don't think if I wanted to leave here and go into private practice, I could do that. Well, you'd have to go into private practice as a lung cancer specialist. <laughs> yeah, and that's in private practice, that's, that's not a viable yeah. model. But that's the whole concept of a comprehensive cancer center slash cancer hospital that we have here is that you have the super specialists. For most comprehensive cancer centers, that's the case. They have to be a certain size like Ohio State, like some of the smaller ones will have people for sure specializing, but maybe not in just one cancer by itself. Um, here we're pretty large institutions, so we have you know teams. I mean, there's eight lung medical oncologists alone, you know. So, so you came here in 2011 from Georgetown, right? Correct. What brought you here? What made you decide to do this change in careers, and what opportunity did you see here for it yourself? Was, it was really the job, for sure. Um, nice place to raise a family. Uh, but the uh, job was what was really enticing. I mean, at that point, the institution was clearly on an upswing. Pelotonia back then was raising $4 million, $7 million. Who, you know, who knew we were getting now? But yeah. that was considered, to me, a strong sign of community support. And if the community was supporting the institution that way, then there must be something good here because they would know about it. And so, um, you know, I was at the National Cancer Institute for about 13 years, Georgetown for about 10 or 11 years. And so I always thought it was a good idea to go to a new institution and refresh. But Georgetown was also, it's a great institution, but it was also getting kind of small. So that was a time where I said, you know what, I'm interested in moving. And uh, the Ohio State opportunity, you know, came up under Mike Caligiri and being, you know, recruited by other great people here, Electra Pesquet and Clara Bloomfield and others, John Bird. And I was like, yeah, it felt, felt right. I didn't even really even negotiate much, didn't look around, just said this was the move to do. Well, that was like a hall of fame of people you just yeah. you just mentioned there. Yeah, and, and more. I'm afraid yeah. I'm always afraid to <laughs> mention names because there are some that I would forget, and I don't want to insult them. But you came here as the deputy director Correct. of the Comprehensive Cancer Center. So, and so, just to make sure people understand what that means, give us a quick understanding of what a comprehensive cancer center is. And in addition to that, you're going to see patients. So you have the whole. Um, the whole gamut. Well, it was interesting. I'll, I'll answer your question about what is a comprehensive cancer center in a second. But when I first took that call from Mike Caligiri, who you know knows how to recruit, has all the charm, brilliant guy. Um, Just so it, people know, he was the head of the comprehensive cancer center and the James Hospital back in 2011. Correct. And what he said to me, which was really intriguing, was, "You're going to have a big job." But we as senior leaders have to be role models. So you're not coming here to wind down your research. You're not coming here to wind down your mentoring or any of your activities because you have to show people 
what it's like to be a true scientific leader. By example. By example. And I was like, that doesn't sound possible. He said, <laughs> we'll make sure you have the administrative support that you can do everything you need to do and still help set scientific vision, build infrastructure, connect the dots so I can explain sort of what my job looks like. But a comprehensive cancer center is a designation from the National Cancer Institute. There's a bunch, but less than one in every state. I every think state. It, there's like 70 some, right? Well, or, comprehensives are somewhere in the 50s. 50s? Okay. There's, there's non-comprehensive centers as well. And so um, to get that designation from the Cancer Center, you have to write this massive thousands of page grant, um, explain how you are organizing research at your institution in ways that wouldn't make the accomplishments if you weren't here. So you could have cancer research, but the NCI is looking for those catalysts to make the work better, breaking down institutional barriers. Interestingly, it's a grant, but you only compete against yourself. Every time you go in, it's gotta be better. Otherwise, you're not building in ways that might have happened if there wasn't a comprehensive cancer center. So um, it, it's a review that looks at both numbers as well as impact. So it looks at, is your grant dollars up and how many people have you recruited and you know, and how many papers have you published and how many patients you put on trial and that's all really important. But it's really a grant of stories. You know, We had this vision, we got these three people together, we then recruited these other three people, they turned that into some paper or drug you know, that got FDA approval and so it's, it's really are you making an impact for the community in the state of Ohio as well as, you know, you know, internationally? Wow. And then the word comprehensive means you need to cover all areas of cancer research. So there's three general areas. There's clinical sciences, clinical trials. There's population sciences, so cancer control, um, cancer survivorship, uh, cancer prevention. And then basic science. How do you fuel the discovery so the population scientists and the clinical trialists can make the difference in the world. Now, you said you weren't smart enough to be a, a general physician and know every parts of the body, which is a, a little bit of modesty. But as deputy director of the Comprehensive Cancer Center, you needed to know a little bit or more about what everyone was doing here. So my job is to sort of be that catalyst, that enabler to recognize what's the next thing, what's the next 10 steps. And so it's not me, but it's knowing when someone explains something to me to say, you know what, that's a direction we need to go. So it's, it's pulling people's ideas together. A lot of times there's, there's an idea out there and I'll pull a bunch of people in the room and some people have said this is not a, a nice analogy um, because, <laughs> it is, because I'm going to use a used car salesman okay. approach. Uh, but used car salesmen are perfectly nice and they're not, <laughs> they and they're get not a bad, crooks. They get a bad right. rap. <laughs> but you, know, you get a bunch of people in the room they know they're looking for something, selling something that they want, and have them drive off really happy. And so that's the same thing. It's like foster those collaborations, establish the feasibility, don't ask people to do stuff that you know that they won't be able to get done, um, or all pretty busy, and then create something that's more. And that's, you know, that's from, from you know, smaller projects of just two people with grants where we figure out, hey, we need to buy this instrument to help them get this done to very large projects like the Pelotonia Institute of Immuno-Oncology. So it's also, and as you were saying that, when you say small projects, I'll bet it's connecting 
two or three groups doing small projects, you see the link between them, combine them, and, and those right. three small projects lead to something bigger. Yeah, so we'll see what happens. But in the last year or so, um, we've had a couple of people who have gotten grants in um, chemotherapy complications, neuropathies, brain issues, peripheral neuropathies, chemo brain, that sort of thing. And I realized we had two or three people here, and then by coincidence, we were recruiting three other people in different colleges with very different disciplines from nursing to basic science to neurology. And I was like, wait a minute, you guys need to start meeting on a monthly basis and then bring in other people. And that's, you know, that's one of the fun things about my job is just knowing how to, how to connect dots and what's the feasibility for research and, quite frankly, figure out who to invest in. Wow. So if you could, what are a couple of the bigger, I don't know if projects are the right, is the right word, but what are some of the bigger things over the, the past dozen or so years that you've been the deputy director that the, that the Comprehensive Cancer Center has well, developed? Uh, you know, I won't take credit for these, but I was on the ground right. floor pulling this together. So, right. you know, the Palatania Institute of Immuno-Oncology, that success is all Dr. Zihai Lee. But he and I really figured out the structure that would work at Ohio State and what are the scientific priorities that would work at Ohio State and, and how to really push the envelope and, and, and mentor him, not that he really needs mentoring, on, on how to be successful here at Ohio State. And I mean that in a very positive way. We have a strong research culture, but every institution is different. And you just can't walk in or ride in on your horse and say, hey, I'm going to fix everything. Um, but, but it was recognizing at, a, at the right time that immunotherapy was, was vital and creating an institute that was going to bring, that was going to do yeah, that. This was a vision that, that of, certainly started, and it wasn't only mine, but it was a vision that started before Dr. Lee was recruited. And what's important is, I'll correct you, that it wasn't only about immunotherapy. That was okay. one of the things I really pushed. It was immuno, that's why we call it the Institute of Immuno-Oncology. Because okay. oh. that includes prevention. It includes survivorship. It includes side effects. It's not just using drugs to treat cancer. And I was very conscious about making sure that we don't narrow that down. Because the power of the immune system is affecting everything from cancer development to the complications of the drugs we treat, to survivorship, um, it's, it's huge. And so I wanted to make sure that we didn't get into that box where a lot of other institutions are in that box. So the Pelotonia Institute of Immuno-Oncology right. uh, is one big thing that, that's been developed. What's, what's another? Uh, well, the Center for Tobacco Research. You know, okay. when I got here, um, I was an active cancer, well, sorry, tobacco researcher. And there was a lot of people here who were pretty good, who, quite frankly, I only knew them from meetings. I really never worked with them. And um, an opportunity came out for a large um, uh, grant from the, from the FDA and the National Cancer Institute. And we pulled together. I never worked with these people before, but Mary Ellen Weavers, Amy Ferkatich, um, Ellen Peters, who was here at the time. We pulled this grant together, um, not really knowing each other. They all knew each other well. But like, who is this guy coming in? Like the great savior, you know? (laughs) Uh, And who's this deputy director who thinks he's so smart and that sort of thing? Well, we got the grant and that really started the catalyst. And then recognizing that we had the critical mass here, we said, well, let's build on that. And uh, we recruited Ted Wagner um, as the vision to sort of enact this Center for Tobacco Research and working closely with Ted. 
at this point now, I mean, I would argue that we have, you know, one of the best tobacco research programs in the country, um, very large grants, lots of faculty that are very active, uh, you know, so that's, that's another example. Now, tobacco research, I've, I've had a chance to talk to Ted and you a little bit about this. It's very interesting. It's, it's about not just the impact of tobacco on people's lungs. It's about helping the federal government regulate them and prevent them uh, prevent tobacco companies from putting out products that are going to be either more harmful or entice younger people to get hooked. Well, so the FDA has fairly broad authority, and what developed over the last, since 2009, when the FDA got the authority to regulate tobacco, believe it or not, they, they were prevented from the FDA law in the 1950s from touching tobacco. So Congress had to pass a law changing the FDA's authority. So that happens in 2009. A lot, of, and a lot of focus, a lot of research dollars on how they help the FDA in prevention, reduction of risk, um, uh, um, reducing marketing that's having an adverse impact on people to use more tobacco products, how to foster quitting. And we really thought it was going to be the tobacco endgame. It was going to be well-funded from user fees from the tobacco industry, which is how FDA gets a lot of their funding. So pharmaceutical companies, when they put a drug on the market, oh, they have user fees. Got it. This was going to be the largest, larger than the drug division at the FDA. In retrospect, it's not been so good. The tobacco company and, and, and some others supported the FDA bill. That should have been a red flag <laughs> that that was going to be a problem. And what it's really done is, who knew government works slowly? You know, we really can't count. They did. And the FDA hasn't really had that many accomplishments yeah. because a lot of it gets hung up not only in government but in courts. Yeah. And what is really done is sustain tobacco use at its current level and leaving us to try to still chip away. It wasn't, you know, the great changing the tobacco endgame because in that law said certain things that, that the FDA couldn't ban nicotine entirely, couldn't ban cigarettes entirely had a clause in there that if you're making, if you're already selling products at a certain point in time, you can continue selling those products. So it kind of normalized and accepted that tobacco smoking, is go, cigarette smoking is going to be part of our culture. Wow. So it's just as hard now to fight that. And in retrospect, we didn't know that. FDA is doing some really good stuff. I don't want to dump on it entirely. Um, but it's really compared to what we thought, what we all thought, including the FDA, um, could happen, just hasn't happened. But then a whole new thing happened, vaping. Well, so that's part of the problem is that FDA has spent more time catching up with an epidemic than they could really to address the smoking issue. Wow. And so that's kind of overwhelmed them too. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to hear more about what Peter's career has encompassed and what he's going to do next. In today's world, misinformation abounds, but at the Ohio State Health and Discovery website, we're addressing today's most relevant health, wellness, science, and research topics, all from the Ohio State experts you can trust. We're tapping into physicians, scientists, and thought leaders across our medical center and health sciences colleges to give you the deeper story behind the headlines and the truth about the topics affecting the health of individuals, society, and the world. 
Visit health.osu.edu today. We're back with Peter Shields. And one of the numbers that stuck out that I read earlier is you've been part of teams or the principal investigator that has uh, been awarded $52 million in grants, which is a very hefty and important sum that's funded a lot of great research. How do you do that? What's sort of the secret that you, for you personally and that you also help others when they apply for grants? Throughout my career, I've been happy and fortunate and lucky enough, I guess that's redundant, um, <laughs> to really work with great people at other institutions, at the same institution. Ohio State has this incredible you know, culture of collaboration and research. I would not have come here if I hadn't really looked under the hood deeply because my research has always been very multidisciplinary. It involves collaborators in different colleges and other institutions. And if this was a siloed institution that was driven by, you know, department chairs who say, you know, mine, 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 or college deans who say mine, 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 I wouldn't have been here. And so, uh, you know, so I enjoy building those teams. And I've been really lucky, you know, as I mentioned, the, uh, the tobacco research area, great collaborators, uh, but even things like the beating lung cancer in Ohio, um, you know, study, but that was another Peloton. That was another statewide screening program, right? And, and now we've got you know dozens of publications, really important stuff with that on how to impact the quality of life, depression, stress in lung cancer patients. So um, it's kind of one grant at a time. It's I often say that we're professional communicators. You know, if we don't get our research into journals, we got to communicate that, and we got to communicate our ideas to peer-reviewed grant systems to get your grants, and it's sort of one at a time, some big, some small. Uh, but it's really the, you know, the, the infrastructure of the Comprehensive Cancer Center, the administrative support, the shared resources, um, where everyone here is just totally on mission, which is cancer focus. Now, Pelotonia has come up a few times, and that's, I think, I know we're over $270 million that Pelotonia has raised for research here. And the idea was to use that money, some of it, to do the early research that could lead to successful bigger grants. Has that come well, about? So, and what has been your role in that? Sure. But the money definitely goes to sort of ideas that we peer review. And we have a pretty high bar. And that bar is the research has to be good enough that you're willing to go back to your mother, your friend, your you know, whomever, and say, hey, we're short 10 bucks, would you get, swipe your card one more time for my ride? And so that's a, that's a pretty heavy bar. Uh, but it also goes for a lot of recruitment. I mean, we're really lucky to get this community support. We're really lucky to have the Palatania folks who now to, know how to harness that community support. And so, uh, you know, we invested a lot of dollars over the last, especially the last three to four years as those 20, 25 million dollars except for the COVID year. Um, uh, and now that's really paying off. So what we're seeing is almost every day new grants, high-impact publications. We recruited a phenomenal large number of junior faculty right out of their fellowships who it's like almost every day it feels like they're getting their first R01, which is the big deal grant. They're getting these big publications. They're getting invited to you know, international um, uh, conferences. And so that investment, more so than the senior folks, 
But these junior folks are the next generation to use that cliche and they're working together and it's just it's just amazing to see how these people are just you know you know just taking advantage of the infrastructure to just get their work done so that's a great overview and i'm sure you could go on for a long time but i think i i think it's important what are you gonna do next you're gonna still see patients and do research well so you know that's what we all love you know, I've often said as deputy director, I had the best job in the world because I was able to build and create and that sort of thing. Um, but other people can do that and should do that. Research is fun. You know, sitting in those lab meetings, looking at those discoveries, you know, getting a paper from someone. And I just found that, you know, in the patient care too, I just found that I was doing everything as quickly as possible. I wasn't able to put the time in that I knew I needed to. So rather than working on that grant for two or three months, you know, I do it in two weeks. Okay. And, and yeah. for a while, there was a badge of honor. Many people will say, oh, yeah, I did a grant over a weekend and I got funded. <laughs> That's actually not so great. You know, I mean, maybe those people are that brilliant to do that. Um, but really, these things take time. Um, mentoring takes time. And, you know, so I realized that I didn't want to live in that fast lane anymore. Other people can do that. Other people thrive on it just the way I thrived on it. And so really just to be able to do the research and the clinical as well as I should be. Clinical is seeing patients. Seeing patients. I just said, well, you know, I should just step down as the deputy director. And the cleanest way to do that, quite frankly, was to officially retire from the institution. Got rehired the next day as a returning retiree with a lower level of appointment. And so now it's it's great because... You know, where I used to have hundreds of emails every day, you know, now there's like 20 or 30, and I'm still wondering why I'm getting that many. Um, I'm getting really good at unsubscribe, 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 <laughs> or letting people know that yeah. to, to not do that. But um, so now I get to do what where I really started, and I'm like most faculty. Most faculty see patients and do research. Wow, so it's almost like you're you're a 30-year-old doctor again. Yeah. <laughs> but with all that experience and knowledge and, wow. But... You're also doing something kind of different and unique. Well, you know, so I do have extra time. Some people... <laughs> extra time. You know, actually, it's not really. It's I've really I, just changed jobs. I know. You're probably now... You, what are you now? You used to work 70 hours a week. Now you're working 50. Well, I was hoping to bring it down to 45, 50. I'm still at 70, but that's oh. because I'm actually enrolled in an accelerated but full-time paramedic program. Paramedic so, program. Right. Riding in ambulances. Correct. And so I'm, uh, you know, so some guys retire to go fly fishing or play golf (laughs) or travel. And I'm, you know, I had this passion in medical school and and undergraduate where I was riding ambulances as an EMT. So this is a different type of patient care. I'm able to go where they really need it, you know, in their homes, um, you know, you know, in their car wreck, in their office, when they fall on the street coming out of a supermarket. Um, whether it's, it's hands, serious, hands-on medicine. It's hands-on medicine, and it's, you know, we have a scope of practice with limited protocols compared to what a physician can do, but it's totally different because it's messy. You know, when you show up, you don't know what the person's going to say. Right. You know, it's not like, you know, you've got a medical history already. You've got medical records. You've got nurses seeing them and medical assistants, and there's a track record when you get to see them in your clinical environment, which, quite frankly, is fairly sterile you know white coats you know urine control you know when you're a paramedic you don't know what's 
going to come at you from from either side, and that's very exciting. But that's where people need it. But you know, it goes back to when I was in D.C. I was very active in the community as well, just in a very different ways. Um, I'm very proud that I was able to principally develop a free medical clinic um, that was uh, for Central Americans. So I had a Central American partner, great leader, um, who's now back in El Salvador, um, and we built that. It's now a federally qualified health center with that we started with a Tuesday night clinic that was totally free, wow. um, another breast cancer screening clinic. So I've always wanted to do community support. That's I really enjoy being able to give that way. And now you will again. In a, in a very different way. I mean, people have said to me, you're a doctor. Why would you want to be a paramedic? Including some paramedics. <laughs> and I explained to them what I just said to you. It's, it's a different type of medical care. You know, as a doctor, you can see lots of patients per hour in a clinic day. In an ambulance, you know, it could be one patient. That could take two hours. But that's what's needed. I feel like you might like a good challenge. And of, that's it. That's it. Learning and then doing this paramedic. It's kind of intimidating knowing yeah. that, you know, once I'm licensed, I'll be working with other paramedics who'll have more paramedic experience. Yeah. But um, you know, when you're in when you're in control there, it's not like you have your great oncology pharmacist and your oncology nurses and, yeah, and the nurse practitioners. It's, you know, you and a couple of other people. And that's another thing, as you you're of retirement age you not just only do you want to keep busy but you want to do something meaningful and this keeps you young you're learning yeah. new things and doing something important and active and out in the community yeah i feel like i'm in pretty good shape but this is just another reason to yeah. stay in pretty good shape and and keep one mentally smart i mean i don't see myself you know slowing down in any anytime soon but for as long as i do this um as many people i can take care of that's great well excellent thank you this was Great. I learned a lot, and I, I'm just fascinated and inspired by your new career thanks. as a paramedic. That's, oh. I think that's kind of amazing. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. I'm really looking forward to it. Started the ride, so I didn't freak out. It's all good. Okay. <laughs> well, congratulations and good luck in the next chapter of your life. All right. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.